Open, open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Luke chapter 6. If you're using the Pew Bible like me, uh, page eight, 862, uh, we're going to be talking today about a passage of Scripture that I have never once liked. Uh, but if the Bible doesn't challenge us, then what are we doing, right? You know, if it's uh, every so often when people reach a certain age, uh, typically around, if, especially if they reach to the age of 100, you might have a local news team come out and do a, like a special interest piece on you. And there was this one where a reporter was meeting with this guy who had just turned 100 years old, and he asked him, you know, what are you most proud of in your life? And the guy sat there and thought for a little bit. He's like, you know what? I don't have any enemies in this world. And the reporter said, that's amazing. How inspirational. What a beautiful thought. And the guy goes, yeah, I outlived every last one of them. <laughs> hey And I love the honesty of his response, and I can absolutely be sympathetic to it, because isn't that how we tend to approach dealing with our enemies? I mean, maybe you might take a more active approach, you know, you might spread lies about them, you might at very least gossip about them, or you might try to troll them on social media, and if you're doing that for the love of all that is holy, knock it off, because my goodness, but if Sometimes we secretly or not so secretly openly hope for their demise. We may even pray for it, or, uh, and we absolutely mourn when our enemies succeed. There's a song that was very popular in the church, uh, known, or that goes by, they will know that we are Christians by our, anyone else? By our love. But that's not what I'm seeing in the church today. And I'm not just talking about ODCC. I'm talking about the church globally. I would say as a rule that the world knows the church way much more for what we are against as opposed to what we are for. Christianity today is painted as a uh, some sort of angry, politically activist movement. And I don't think that that characterization is very fair, but I also can see how they get there. Because when we get caught up with the talking points of our time, we are no longer known as a spiritual organization that is obsessed with handing out hope and healing to a hurting world. Instead, when the world is hurting, our response is to say, well, serves them right. We told them this would happen. Now, clearly, the Bible talks about how We are not supposed to love the world, or at least not to love the things of this world. We are commanded to come apart from the world, to be separate, to present the world an alternative to the brokenness. We are are called to be salt and light in, in a very sinful and broken world. And we are called to speak boldly with prophetic voices, to call people towards repentance. But this must be presented with compassion and concern. Truth must be spoken in love. Like Jesus, we are people called to be full of grace and truth. Our culture must know us as the truth tellers, but we must tell the truth with tears. Because we're not the victims. They are. They are the ones who are still enslaved to sin. They are the ones who have had their minds darkened by this, by this very evil and present age. They are the ones whose eyes are blinded. And when, so when we interact with our enemies... It must not be out of hate and spite and vitriol, but out of love and overwhelming compassion. This is the example we get from Jesus, and this is what we are instructed to do. 
And I'm going on a, on a limb here, but I think that if I were to diagnose how we got here, how, how does this happen? And I think that this especially happens, I see it in the church in America, because this happens because we become obsessed with the illusion of control. We've been looking at the book of Acts in, a, in our midweek Bible study, and I, I got this idea about control. And I think about how much did the disciples of Jesus really have control over in their lives? I mean, the vast majority of them were raised by the Jewish, raised in the Jewish faith, and as Jewish people, they were under the thumb of Rome all the time. The idea of Jesus being killed on a cross, of a Jewish person being killed on a cross, that was commonplace back in those days. In fact, you would be traveling or going somewhere, it wouldn't be uncommon for you to just have the road lined with crosses with dead people on them, because that's what Rome did. They said, if you're thinking about coming against us, See what happens to those who try to upset the authority of this world. But then the disciples, in this culture, they saw Jesus. They saw uh, this man who took everything that the world's powers had to throw at him, and even more, they killed him, and he overcame all of it. The stone was rolled away. He walked out of the grave, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so the disciples saw what real power looks like. And once they saw that, they looked at the power structures of this world for what they really are. Fear masquerading as strength. Because this is what we do. When we feel like we're not in control, we try to break our worlds down into little pieces where we can control this one little part and we are masters of our own domain. But when you have encountered real power, the power that we are called to be ambassadors and witnesses to, the type of power that raises a dead man to life, if that's the power that's on display, we don't have time to waste our things to waste our lives on the things that this world is after. And so I ask us, church, are we afraid of losing control? Or are we going to trust God? Are we going to trust him enough to do what he says, even in the face of overwhelming fear? Because most of us will get to the point where we say, yes, I, I need to trust God more, but I'm scared. And, and it's okay to be honest, but I think trust is shown most when there is fear, when there's something to lose, when there's a reason to make this uncomfortable. Because trust that disappears when times get tough isn't trust at all. I heard this recently, and I, and I really believe this, is that if you take Jesus' teaching, uh, when you boiled it down, when he was teaching to a crowd of people, not the one-on-ones like we had with Nicodemus, but when he's teaching to crowds of people, you could boil down, essentially, his teaching into two, like, through lines. And one of them... Jesus warns us about living for the approval of men. And the other thing is that he warns us about having a security in this world that is not God. When we're worried about what other people think of us, instead of worrying about what God thinks of us, then we become like the Pharisees. We practice a religion that makes us look good, not a religion that draws us into God's goodness. And when we are concerned about having a security in this world that is based on our ability to control things, then we are not living as if we serve a God who is worthy to be trusted. And so today, I'm going to read this passage from Luke chapter 6. It's in verses 27 through 38. When Jesus is teaching a crowd, we would call this uh, the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, I think this was Jesus' traveling sermon. You know, this is where when he went into a town, he's here to talk about the kingdom. And he is saying, here's what the kingdom is like. And this is towards the end, by far my least favorite part of <laughs> this sermon. Uh, so in verse 27, 
But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. And lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. For you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. It's a unique passage, and I want to share with you some observations because... I want to make this point again. I don't like it. This makes me uncomfortable because this passage requires trust. It's countercultural. It's counterintuitive to know that there's someone who hates me to enter into their world to give them more access to me. I'm not a fan. Hard pass. All right. I'm not going to do this. But if I call Jesus my Lord, I don't get to say no. So if we're going to talk today about how we can trust God even when we are scared, when there's fear, when we have insecurity, when we have doubts and questions, because we need, we need to lose this illusion of control. We never really had it anyways, guys. We need to learn how to trust more. So how do we live, how do we learn to live lives outside of our own control, our control? To live the way God is calling to live means that we are trusting Jesus to be the sole provider, to be the leader of our lives, to be our Lord. If that is going to be the case, we need to give up control. This is where our trust meets our fears, and we continue to walk through our fears instead of stopping. We have to trust our trusts instead of trusting our doubts. And so we have to behave out of control. And Jesus tells us to be loving to unloving people. Now, He's not saying to be loving to unlovable people. He says to be loving to unloving people. Love your enemies. Show them love. Don't just say, well, I'd love them if I ever came near them. Uh, He says, show it. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Don't respond to insults and provocations. When someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. And he's not saying just sit there and let someone beat you to death, guys. He's saying that if someone insults you, if they are attacking your character, you don't fight back. You don't have to stand there and get pummeled, but you're not going to be the one who fights. Instead, let the Lord defend you. Trust him. It's a tough thing to live out because the back half of this, we think, oh, let the Lord defend me. I'm good with that. But we don't want to go through the first half to get there. Well, I can't, I don't want to let anyone, you know, just pummel on me. So I'm just going to work on the other half. And Jesus doesn't give us that option. Are we in or or are we out? You are to give your enemies more access to you by showing them love. 
and let God sort the rest out. This passage is calling us to be a blessing to those who are less fortunate than we are. And we don't do it for recognition. We don't run around town here handing out big prices right checks, uh, showing the world just how good we are so that we can get photo ops. No, we do what we are supposed to do and let God get the glory. It all goes well that way anyways. So Jesus says, don't live in such a way that everyone notices what you're doing. Live the life that God wants you to live and trust that he notices. Because we are to be a model of God's behavior to the world. Do you understand that? When we are called his hands and his feet, when the world sees, sees us, they need to see God. Jesus, in verse 36, he says, be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Everything Jesus did was to reveal the father to us. So what you see in Jesus was of God. And if you want to know what God is like, you look at the character of Jesus. And so I ask us a question. It's a real simple one. Did Jesus demonstrate to us everything that we just read in this passage? Did Jesus show us how this can be done? Yes or no? Okay, I guess he did. Okay. Um, And so if he did it first before asking us to do it, the model is in front of us. It can be done, but not on our strength, on God's. And if you're smart, you are going to try to measure the cost of what it cost Jesus to bring this message. And I'm not going to lie, that is the part of living in trust in the face of fear. Now, if I have a sales pitch for you this morning, because it's been pretty dour so far, but there is a reward. This passage promises us a reward for modeling our behavior after God's. God rewards rewards all of us who obey and trust him. Our behavior will lead to benefits. In verse 35, he says, your reward will be great. And what's amazing is that God never tells us when we're going to receive it. Sometimes it's a little bit now. Maybe it's all of the reward later. It doesn't matter. Do we trust that the Lord will provide what he says he's going to provide? And what I love in this passage, three times in verses 32, 33, and 34, Jesus presents a situation where we can seemingly be doing something that shows that we trust God, but we're only doing it because it fits our ego and our own benefit. He says, what credit is it to you? What credit is it to you? What credit is it to you when you do good things to good people? Or when you do the right thing in the right crowd to get the right recognition. He says, if that's what you are about, go nuts. But I'm going to have nothing to do with that. You will get your reward in full. But if you're doing the right thing in those hard, fearful moments, biblically, that's what it means to trust the Lord. To give up our security. To give up what people think about us so that we can live in such a way that Jesus Christ is the one who's noticed. And then in verse 38, and I want to be clear about this morning, if you read this and you are thinking about money, you're missing the point because it's so much bigger and vaster than this. That Satan wants us to think right now, well, here he goes, here's the ask. I'm asking for something that is far greater than what's in your wallet or in your bank account. I'm going to ask for something more significant than that. Verse 38, give and it will be given to you, good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. God says, if you do the uncomfortable, out-of-control things that I've asked you to do by faith, I'm going to bless your life in so many ways, but be careful. God doesn't always return like for like. You may sacrifice financially, and God blesses your life in some other way. You may sacrifice physically, 
and get involved and active and give of your time and God will bless you in other ways. God doesn't reveal how he's going to reward us. He says at the end of the day, you're not going to be disappointed with what I give you in return. I'll take care of you. But I'll say this, and it's a warning that I heard a few months back, and it has haunted me ever since, that at the end of the day, when your life's over and there's nothing left, if Jesus isn't enough for you, and he may just not be worthy of him, it's always going to come down to God and you. Living a life outside of our control means that we need to trust God to fill in the gaps that we can't. We have got to offer God what he really wants because he's worthy of it. Not what you think he wants, but what he really wants. Because it's bigger than our time, our treasure, or our talents. He wants the one who possesses the time, the one who possesses the treasure, the one who possesses the talents. We read about this in the New Testament. When uh, he was writing to a church, the Apostle Paul wrote about an opportunity for them to be generous. To the Corinthian church, he says, they gave according to their ability and beyond their ability. And now, how do you give beyond your ability? And this is a sports thing that always drives me crazy. It's like, oh, we need to give 110%. I don't think any one of us has ever given 100%. But we say it all the time, you know, give 110%. And, but Paul writes this in, in the, to the Corinthians. He, he says, let's go, he gave, they gave 110%. And I'm like, how can you give more than what you actually have? But what you read there, he says, they first gave themselves to the Lord. What allows you to give more than you can is when God uses what you give. Because when God uses us, it's going to be a far greater value than anything that we could measure. Trust begins when I totally give myself to Jesus. Everything I am. Where I have no control and I am incredibly uncomfortable. This is called trust. And we have to offer ourselves every day. Every day, we have to choose to give God what he really wants. Every morning. Romans 12, verse 1. A very... uh, famous passage of scripture he says i urge you brothers and sisters in view of god's mercy offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to god this is your spiritual act of worship every morning we need to make this choice to be a living sacrifice Uh, patrick mead has this great quote he says that the problem with being a living sacrifice is that you can crawl off the altar a dead sacrifice just lays there with no will but a living sacrifice assumes the position And what's interesting is that every day I wake up, I have to ask myself my question, am I going to build God's kingdom today, or am I going to build my own? And it is that clear cut. Because what I find is that when I'm building within the kingdom of God, it's a wonderful place. But when I'm building a kingdom outside of God's kingdom, it's a total mess. Many of you know that I have this ridiculous, uh, stupid hobby of running marathons. And... I can share you stories that will bore you to death, or maybe they'll inspire you, and plenty of that would probably gross you out. Uh, but uh, I know that, but here's the thing, the only reason I ever finished one marathon is because I am ridiculously stubborn. Because I had a friend who was at the church with me at the time, and he's like, hey, you want to run a marathon? I'm like, ah, capital idea, sounds good. And uh, so I, I set out to do this, but I was not trying to satisfy anything other than my own ego uh, when I did this. And I was ready to give up. I mean, after the first marathon, I'm like, I'm, I'm done with this. And so, I, but I was so, uh, you know, my head was so big, I was talking to my older brother who said, eh, I'm never going to run a marathon. And so I jokingly said, hey, buddy, when are we going to run a marathon? He's like, oh, how about next May? And I said, 
Okay. <laughs> and uh, fast forward the clock, it's been about uh, 10 more since then. But here's the thing is that I share this story because I know what it's like to run a race. Uh, but if you've been here the last couple of days, and many of you know, uh, earlier this week, we lost a charter member of our church in Gene Thomas. And if you've been here, you could not have escaped the message uh, of 2 Timothy 4, where Paul writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And yesterday I had this moment uh, during the uh, funeral service when his grandson Brandon, he had this moment uh, during the eulogy, this come to Jesus moment saying that my grandpa would be ticked if I did not let you know that this kingdom was here for you. And I was smirking to myself thinking like, dude, Brandon, you're preaching to the choir, brother. I mean, there's not a person in this room for Gene Thomas who didn't know that he loved Jesus and that he wanted them to love him too. And I was sitting with that the rest of the day and I was saying, I really hope people say that about me. What an amazing testimony. I, I, I've read that Second Timothy verse. I've dismissed it as a cliche so many times. But when it came to Gene, I mean, man, people knew that he loved Jesus. There's not one person who came into his sphere of influence who didn't leave knowing that. It's not enough for us to say that, okay, well, I became a Christian. I was baptized on such and such a day. Uh, My ultimate goal in life is not to say that I started the race. My goal is that Jesus is going to drag my sorry tail across the finish line. Because when when my master welcomes me into my rest, I want to need rest. And if I'm not exhausted in the race of faith, then can I really say that I fought the good fight, that I've accomplished the things that are set before me, but I want to tell you, this requires giving God what he's really after. And you have to give it to him every day. It's a choice every day to take up your cross and follow him. Because real faith will demand from you what's most important from you. Let's think about that. Real faith is going to demand from you what you hold most important. If your faith is not challenging you to go where you don't want to go, to say what you're uncomfortable saying, to become what you're not interested in becoming on your own, then you're not being tested by the faith that Jesus calls from us. This is so much bigger than anything that's in your wallet or on your calendar or in your abilities. This is about trusting God when it's scary. Because being a living sacrifice puts everything in our lives into a biblical perspective. If you want to know how the Bible is going to make sense in every corner of your life, you have to trust it first. You have to trust it first because faith is always found on the other side of obedience. It's when you have walked with your fear and your trust at the same time that you are truly obedient. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And church, I know this is getting personal, but I need to ask you, I need you to testify to those around you today is, do you believe that anything you lack in your life that Jesus is not able to provide it? Do you believe that he is going to deliver what you need because he loves you? And so we, what has he asked for us in return? And that is to seek his kingdom over your own. Choose to step into your fear and your discomfort for something far greater because our problem is never Our problem is, I should say, our problem is always whether or not we trust him. It's never whether or not he's worthy of being trusted. Trust always comes down to our faithfulness, never his.
because he's always faithful. Being a living sacrifice is going to make us more like Jesus. And now, I always say that's probably where, becoming more like Jesus should be where I end every sermon, but I'm going to keep going. Uh, But I want to ask two questions here. Was Jesus in control every moment here on earth? Absolutely not. He had no control of every moment of his life. Was he comfortable every moment of his life here on earth? Of course not. He said, I don't even have a place to lay my head. I have the clothes on my back. I don't worry about possessions. He was reliant on other people. He lived out of his own control and uncomfortable because he knew the one who was holding his life and who was his comfort. I've shared this passage several times just because it's one of my favorites, so why not do it again? Uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 said, Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And I like to paraphrase, paraphrase that by saying, Jesus gave up the best parts of being God. He gave up his control and his comfort to have less of those things for you and me. And Paul says, carry that same attitude. It puts things in perspective. It gets rid of our slavery to this world. It strengthens our faith because God proves himself faithful and it makes us more like Jesus. Let's listen to the words of God through the Apostle Paul again in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Starting in verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. There is a door for opportunity for every one of us to give God what he really wants, you. And it's easy to sit here and think, well, It's a nice teaching, and I have some things to think about. No, you're missing that, because for the past five years, this church has blessed me in so many ways, and it blessed me with an opportunity to work at something that I love, but I don't do this work. I don't study and listen and read and take time and solitude with the scriptures so that I can just run my mouth for 30 minutes on a Sunday morning, hoping that I can hold your attention. These things that we have been talking about the past few weeks— We are not talking about, we're not just talking about things that the early church did. This is what we do. ODCC exists to bring the kingdom of God nearer until the entire world, the whole world will know, and they'll be given the same opportunity to know their creator. This isn't about coming to church on Sunday. Churches are full of people on every Sunday who have not given themselves to Jesus And it's not just about baptism, although that's important. This is all about taking that first step, that first step from the light into the darkness, that first step through the discomfort and into your fears. 
The challenge for this church is to take that one step from where you are towards where God wants you to be. As out of control as that makes us feel, do we believe Jesus when he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age? Jesus gave up his control and he gave up his comfort so that people like you and me could know who he was and become a part of God's kingdom. And he says, do you love me? Then bring the good news to those that need to hear it. Go and take care of other people. Go and teach them my truth in love. Go present to them the gospel. Go offer them hope. Take this to the world. Offer them my joy and my love. Because as often as you proclaim my death until I come again, you are proclaiming who I am. Being a member of ODCC is not about getting your name in the directory. It's believing that the kingdom that Jesus brought near through the cross and out of the grave needs to be communicated. It needs to be shared. It needs to change people's stories from brokenness into glory. Just like Jesus changed ours that night when he said to God, he said to God in the garden, is there any other way for me to do this? And God said, no, son. I need you to do what I asked you to do. And Jesus gave up his control. He surrendered his comfort. He gave up his life. And you and I are blessed. Let's stand together and sing.